Good morning. It is a significant statement to say that we live in a world of changing beliefs. You know, there are things that people believe today that were rejected by our grandparents 50 years ago. There are things in the realm of the ethical and the moral and the spiritual that people have embraced that just a few years ago would have been unthinkable to embrace. And it has an impact on us. Whether we're talking about the collective pressure of peers or the way that the things that we hear all around us begins to seep into our thinking, we, we struggle with not accepting the doubt and the skepticism that pervades our culture and even our world. And I think that our Lord, even though He was still praying for the disciples, had us in mind when He's praying in John chapter 17 before He gets to verse 20. Because He says there, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, even as the world has hated me. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, John 17, 14, and 15. There is no way for us to avoid what's happening in the world all around us. To avoid the unbelief and the skepticism that just fills the minds of people all around us. Even some who give lip service to it aren't living their lives as though they believe the truths once so clearly believed by so many. But I also think that it works the other way. I also think that it's the case that we don't believe what we once did believe. And this is another form of skepticism. Barna is a research organization that focuses especially in the religious world and how people think religiously. And in their latest survey on beliefs in our culture, they have found that for the first time that the number of those who are skeptical, agnostic toward God and the belief in the Bible as the inspired word of God is equal to those who read their Bibles four or more times a week, about one-fifth of those who are in both categories. And as you do that statistical study, you will find an interesting couple of facts. 88% of all Americans still claim that they have at least one physical Bible in their homes. And yet only 37% say that they read it at least once a week. And as you look at the statistics of those who call themselves skeptical or agnostic, what catches my attention is that today the majority of society fall into that category who are under the age of 48. That is, of those a little bit younger than me all the way down, they are those that are in the majority who say they don't believe that this is God's word and they're not sure that God exists. Does that impact us? Another interesting thing that was brought out in that Barna survey is that 81% of all the people who were surveyed said that they believe that morals and values are declining in the United States. But only 26% connected that to a lack of Bible study. We're in our series of looking at the struggles that we face three weeks ago from yesterday is going to be our seminar. It's rebuilding a stable foundation, overcoming anxiety and depression. And as we look toward that very important community and church-related event, 
We remind ourselves that we live in a world full of people who struggle. We began a few weeks ago by talking about from Psalm chapter 10 that we struggle with trouble. Last week, kind of as a lead into the camp theme at uh, Big Reading, but also as a part of our study, we looked at the idea that we struggle with stress and worry. From Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. But as I began to think about the fact and the reality that we face every day at school, at work, wherever we are, we struggle with doubt. I began to ask myself, where is the passage that we could look at it? And as I thought about it, I was close. Because my first thought was Mark chapter 9. Do you remember that on that occasion Jesus is dealing with the doubt of people? He's dealing with the doubt of religious leaders. He's dealing with the doubts of his own followers. And he is dealing with the doubts of a man who comes to Jesus for help. And as Jesus encounters this man with the, the uh, son who had a mute spirit, he, uh, Jesus addresses him and he says, how long has this been happening to him? He says, from childhood, for it, the Spirit, has often thrown him in the fire and in the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believe. And the father of the son with the mute, mute, mute spirit cried out and with tears said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You ever found yourself there? You ever found yourself turning to the right source, to God? And as you come to God, you come to Him asking for help with your struggle. Maybe the struggle at the core of your heart, and maybe it's a struggle with doubt. And as you would hear God through His Word say and reply to you, if you can believe, all things are possible to Him who believes. Whatever you're struggling with, if you can believe, trust that I can help you. And have you not, even with tears, ever said, as it were, in prayer and reply, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I want to dispel something right here as we get started with the lesson. If you have struggled with doubt, please do not let that allow you to to move further away from God and to think that there is something irreparably wrong with you spiritually. If you'd struggle with the whys of this life and not understanding why things are going on in your life as you're striving to serve God, you find yourself in some wonderful company. That would include the likes of Elijah and David and John the Baptist and even the great Apostle Paul. We struggle with doubt. And so I said I was close, right? It's not Mark chapter 9 that I want to take you to. It's Mark chapter 8. The, the verses that Harold read, and I would ask you to consider with me how Jesus helps us in what he says on that occasion in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 38, to help us to overcome our struggle with doubt. And if you find yourself struggling with doubt this morning, I want you to take comfort from the words that Jesus says and remember and remind yourself that one of those that he is most prominently speaking to, Peter, in a very short period of time after these words, is going to express doubt in a very public way, not just doubt, but denial. And so as we walk through this, and by the way, if you want to look at this text exegetically, that is to understand how the book of Mark works and what its function is, the text we're looking at today is the key to the entire book of Mark. 
It all centers around Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 38. But I want you to see this morning, in the few moments that we have, some things that are necessary if we're going to overcome doubt as we walk through the text. Number one, overcoming doubt requires understanding who Jesus truly is. Verse 27 through 31. If we're going to understand doubt, we must be convicted of who Jesus truly is. You're familiar with this text, maybe even more so from Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13, that contains the statement, Upon this rock I will build my church. But Jesus starts the conversation in Caesarea Philippi in the the way that we're familiar with. He says, Who do men say that I am? And will you notice with me that they do not say, that is the, 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 the public, as they thought about Jesus, they didn't think he was a demon or an evil person. They thought he was a good man. They thought he was a righteous man. They thought he was a prominent man. They even thought he was a holy man. But they did not understand who Jesus was. And because they did not properly identify with him, it affected the way that they lived their lives. In fact, I wonder of all of those people that the disciples may have informally surveyed to get the answer of who Jesus is, how many of that number would join in the mob that was going to call for and participate in the crucifixion of Jesus? But then Jesus narrows the focus from the world to his immediate followers, the men who had been with him for over three years. He wants to know, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the one that we so often give the hard time, so often can come up with the right answer. And we give him a hard time because of what's going to happen just a few verses later after he makes such a powerful, correct statement. But he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He understood a statement that was so important if they were going to overcome the doubt that was surely going to follow. Now, as we look at the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 31... You have the, uh, the process of Jesus. Jesus clarifying who he was. The disciples confessing and affirming his identity. And Jesus reaffirming his identity. An interesting thing that you can do with the book of Mark is to look at Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8 and verse 26. Mark is the action gospel. It starts out right in the middle of things. And it's a fast-paced book that's showing how much Jesus is doing and how much of an impact that he's having and how quickly that he's doing it. And so in those first eight chapters, there are 17 miracles. And those miracles in the first eight chapters are to establish who Jesus is. And it serves as a dividing line between those that would become believers and those that would become enemies. And so now here is the focal point to understand who Jesus is. And then after Mark chapter 8, to the end of, so that's about halfway, there's 16 chapters in Mark. In the last half of the book, there are only three miracles. There's this miracle in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus heals the man whose son had a mute spirit. Then there's the miracle in Mark chapter 10 where he causes blind Bartimaeus to see. And then there's the somewhat enigmatic miracle in Mark chapter 11 where Jesus causes the fig tree to wither. In each one of those cases, the purpose of the miracle was to now help to to lift up and to strengthen these disciples whose faith was lagging, it was sagging, it was weakening because of the pressure of what was about to happen to Jesus. But Jesus, through this, is trying to help people to understand who he is. 
If we are going to survive in a world of skepticism and doubt, we have got to understand who Jesus is. And we cannot waver in our belief in His identity as the Son of God. In Mark 11 and verse 23, Jesus says that they needed to have a faith that was without wavering. And Paul borrows this idea in Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. And he says that Abraham was such a faithful man because he, uh, his faith was without wavering. He did not waver in unbelief. But James contrasts that in James chapter 1 and verse 6. And he says, the double-minded and unstable man is the one who is like, uh, is driven by the wind and the waves of the sea. Because of his faith, In who Jesus is, Abraham could face one of the greatest trials that a person could ever face. A father with the prospect of losing his son. But because he did not have faith, the man in James was told that he should not expect that he should receive anything of the Lord. He would not endure. He would not overcome. Listen, as we find ourselves in a world that does not share the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by the way, look how Mark starts the gospel. Mark starts the gospel by pointing out Jesus' identity. That He is the Son of God, Mark 1 and verse 1. That He is Lord, Mark 1 and verse 3. That He is the Christ, the Anointed One, Mark 1 and verse 1. And so literally from the beginning, by identifying who Jesus is, all the way through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, this entire gospel... It's saying if you're going to make it through this world, you must understand who Jesus truly is. Now that's kind of the foundation. That's really at the heart of, at the beginning of this discussion. But I want you to notice that that's not where Jesus ends this. If if you want to overcome doubt, overcoming doubt requires being mindful of the things of God and not the things of men. We see that in verse 32 and 33. Remember what I just said about Peter and how a great leader he was, a leader in the making, yet a leader who struggled with trying to to make those steps of progress in a steady direction? He has just confessed the right answer about who Jesus is, the only right answer in all time and eternity. But Jesus began to speak plainly to them. He told them, don't tell them yet who I am. It's not my time. Don't go sharing that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he began to very plainly tell them what's going to happen next. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And they're going to kill the Son of Man and on the third day he's going to rise again. And we remind ourselves that these disciples have been hearing for hundreds of years about their second coming of David, their Messiah King who was going to come and was going to emancipate them and cause them to rule over this world. So this hits Peter in just the wrong way. Can you imagine having a conversation with the Son of God? Not only that, but considering God the Son to be one of your closest friends. Now put yourself in that position. So here's Peter who's walked with him in so many places, even places the other apostles had not gone. And he had the audacity to rebuke Jesus. I just can't in this position. It says something about the intimacy, but also something about the powder keg that was Peter. And Jesus returns in kind. And he says, look, you're looking at this from a very improper perspective. You are being mindful of the things of men and not the things of God. I want you to think about how that impacts us as we live in this world. 
As we live in this world, if we're not being mindful of the heaven's perspective, if we're more mindful of the way that people look at things, then we're going to have a hard time doing what Jesus says in the rest of this text. Jesus is about is saying to them that things are about to get a lot harder for you. Look at verse 34 through 38. You're going to have to do some things that show that you're more mindful of the ways of God than the ways of men. But if we can't get that straight in our mind, if we can't see this life through heavenly eyes, when things get hard in our lives spiritually, we're going to listen to what the world says. In its doubt it says, it's not worth it. Why are you following him? And so Peter demonstrates something through his poor example that we need to remember. We need to be more mindful of the things of God than the things of men. If you're going to overcome doubt, that's the second thing. But now Jesus is going to tell us how you do that. Number three, overcoming doubt requires self-denial. In verse 34 and 35. Really it's a three-part thing. If we're going to overcome the doubt of this world, we're going to have to deny self, we're going to have to sacrifice, and we're going to have to submit to Jesus. Now, self-denial is a subjugating or taking control of our thoughts, our wishes, our ambitions, and our aims, and putting them under Christ's control. Sounds easy, doesn't it? That's church talk we just engaged in there. The things we say at church, I'm going to put my will under the will of Christ, and follow Him. It's real easy at 10.07 on a Sunday morning when we're all together. But now try that 10.07 on Monday morning. When you find yourself in a position to where you're told, preserve yourself, take care of yourself, live for today, don't worry about tomorrow, and be your own boss. Set your own way. Don't depend on Him. Depend on yourself. You're the one that got you this far and you'll take yourself to great heights. Just do it the way you think you should. Isn't that the point of some of the songs that we sing? My stubborn will at last hath yielded. Or that song that really challenges and convicts me all of self and none of thee. Or that beautiful song we sometimes sing before the Lord's Supper, I traveled down a lonely road and no one seemed to care. Follow me. Just take your cross and follow after me. Jesus is saying that if you're going to succeed in overcoming the doubt that just literally surrounds you, you're going to have to deny yourself. And when you do that, when you get self out of the way, what that allows you to do is to sacrifice and to serve the purpose that you have that He's given to you. And that's going to cause you to submit to His will. I think I've told you before, I've got a wide array of interest in music. I I love all kinds of music. I don't know how Kathy and I fell into this. When we first got married, I think it was the Mills Brothers that introduced us to this wonderful, I don't even know what you call that genre. On Sirius, it's 40s uh, Junction or something like that. But I, I love that music. And even though Dean Martin's my favorite, I, I like Frank Sinatra. You, you know, uh, his signature song is uh, about New York, but he also has another song that he would often sing in his concerts. I love the melody, but I hate the words. I did it my way. That is the philosophy of the age that says to God, not thy will, but mine be done. 
And when we begin to live that way, and it's such a subtle process that takes place, what occurs is that doubt begins to seep into our heart. Doubt in His sovereignty, in His leadership. And I find myself farther and farther away from Him. Not necessarily and outwardly saying, I don't believe in God, but when you look at the fruit of my life and the way that I am in the world, in the church, in my family, in my individual relationships, I am declaring my doubt by living in a way that's opposite of what His will is. If you're going to overcome doubt, there has to be self-denial. But then number four, Jesus is still showing us how we uh, are not going to be mindful of the ways of God, but uh, of the men, but the ways of God. He says overcoming doubt requires proper investment. Verse 37 and 38. Jesus is telling us that everything that we pursue comes at a cost. That we can make a bargain, but the bargain may be very poor indeed. Proper investment is important. You know, this is Father's Day. I know you thought I didn't know that, but I I do. I'm giving you as much as I gave the mothers on Mother's Day. I'm in the middle of a series as I was then. Let me say this about dads. I have one of the best. And you know that it's, in fact, probably this is why I'm not talking about my dad, is this right here. This is a tough moment for my dad. He's facing something that a father should never have to face. But you know, I woke up this morning and I was thinking about some things about my dad. My dad is amazing at stretching pennies into a dollar. And and that's really important because he's always had to live on pennies. But his approach to those kinds of things I admire, but I don't have his savvy. I'm not the financial guru that he is. Another thing about my dad... My dad seems like a a simple uh, country preacher, but he's a very educated man. I I could tell you stories about sitting in on counseling sessions that he has led where he was able to discover things that I had in several sessions not been able to discover. He has such an aptitude in counseling. But just because he has it doesn't make me a good counselor. In fact, I tell you, that's something I want to grow in a whole lot that I need to. You know, when you think about the faith of the people in your life, isn't it wonderful? But if you have a spouse who is godly and is full of faith and whose life is driven by their faith, or if you have parents, or if you have children, or you have siblings, or you have very close friends who are not struggling with their doubt, that doesn't inherently help you to do the same. It's a matter of what you personally are investing in. And Jesus is saying that you're going to invest in some kind of worldview. Barna tells us that a worldview is the way, is our, our decision making filter. It's the way that we process that big amount of information and experience and relationships and opportunities. It is the filter whereby we make our decisions which determines the direction or course of our life. We all have a worldview. It's not necessarily what we say or sing or pray that it is. It's what the trajectory of our life is showing it to be. Our worldview may be materialism. That says that the things of this life is what's most important. And all of our decisions are driving us in that direction. It may be our flesh or or, uh, our desires. And our life is oriented that direction. And just because we have the right people around us doesn't mean that we are properly investing ourselves. But Jesus says that if you don't invest properly, no matter what you get out of the bargain, you lose. 
I think about how the worldview of our culture is affecting our world, our culture. A, a culture of doubt and skepticism, what does it logically lead to? It leads to me being, being able to say that there not being a God above me to whom I am subject ultimately, that I can make decisions to kill the unborn. I can make decisions to live in a lifestyle that's glorified that we call an alternative lifestyle. Or I don't have to be uh, faithful or true to my marriage vows. And in its more sinister form, it allows a person to say, since I'm the chief, that there's no one above me, and if you make me upset that I can go into the workplace, I can go into the school, I can go into the, the store or even a church building, and I can take life. Now, we may not want to go anywhere near those kinds of things. But Jesus is saying that if we're not investing properly in faith, we're aiming for something that is not the right investment. It will not pay in the end. Jesus says, you're building on a foundation. It's rock or it's sand. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. If I'm going to overcome doubt, I must properly invest. How do I do that? Well, you can engage in a conviction-building study of Christian evidences. You can consult the Bible as a lifeline, as a book that is a pattern for your life, not some outdated, irrelevant book that's dusty and outdated. You can look at prayer as a lifeline that keeps you dependent upon God. You can look at the Bible as a, a book breathed by God. That's to change you. That's to leave you differently than when you got there. To not just be a hearer of the word and then be unchanged when you're done with studying it. But that it remakes who you are. And then as a, 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 an investment in a holy and righteous life that shows that you're setting your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. How do you overcome skepticism, doubt? The last thing that we notice in the text is at the very end of the text, and that is you've got to have moral and spiritual courage. You know, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the angels. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But Jesus ends by saying, you make a choice about how you're living toward the end of this life. And if you're going to overcome doubt, you've got to have courage. In Mark chapter 6, in verse 18, John the Baptist is about to do something, or does something, I, I have a hard time trying to fathom. Take your most respected political leader, who would be living in an unrighteous lifestyle. Okay, if you can if you make that picture in your head. Who's maybe in an adulterous marriage. And then imagine yourself having the opportunity and going into the presence of that powerful political leader, except for this political leader in your mind has your life in his hands or death. And say to him or her, you know that person that you're married to? That's actually your brother's wife. And you don't have a right to be married to her. Didn't happen in that moment. But that was the end of John the Baptist. Herod, except for his fear of the people, sought an opportunity to kill him. 
He knew he was a man of God. Of course, we know what happens with Salome. And later she's going to come and dance. And in that, that lascivious act, he's so uh, full of, uh, of desire that he says, whatever you want up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. But John the Baptist is sitting in that prison because he had the moral courage to go up and to say, this isn't right. I think about the minor prophets. I, I think about those who demonstrate by their example something that we're faced with every day. Every single day, the world tells you, you should not live in a way that you know that is right. And every single day, the world is telling you that you should do what you know the Bible says is wrong. Matthew 19 and verse 10 says, our constant battle is saying no to ourselves. But I want you to notice that Peter, uh, rather Jesus, gives us an incentive that it's, it's powerful. What's the most powerful incentive? The wonderful reward of eternal life. That opens up the possibility to persevere the greatest trials. You know, Peter talks about that in the first letter that he writes in First Peter. About if you will allow yourself to suffer now, there's something that's so great you can't conceive of it. Though you can relate to it. You think about the best times on this earth and that you can see in this life. It's nothing to compare with what's awaiting us. And that eternal reward. So hang on to faith. Look, let that motivate you. But Peter writes a second letter. And in the second letter... He talks about how it's important to have that moral and spiritual courage in an age of doubt and skepticism because there is a judgment day to come. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, the pattern for doubt is as simple as it is dangerous. And what causes that? Walk after your own lust, Peter says. Put a question mark where God has already put a period. Accept the status quo because things are the way they are. They will always be this way. And yet, Jesus reminds them, and Peter will remind them again in 2 Peter chapter 3, that there's coming a day in which all of us are going to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because of the reality of that day, and you know, we looked at some of the things that can help us to properly invest, things like Christian evidences, the Bible, prayer, all of that can build our conviction in what makes the most sense of anything, and that is that at the end of this life, we're going to stand before our Creator, and we're going to give an account of our lives. And if we can live with that day in view, along with the incentive of heaven, we will overcome doubt. A few years ago, CNN did a particular study in which they talked about the decline of religion in America and why that was. And Trevin Wax, a religious editor, wrote in response. And he talked about how it's the idols of this age and how religion has gotten sidetracked in so many ways. And his bottom line statement, I thought, was very interesting. He says that when you allow the things of this world to overshadow you, then it changes Christianity. He says that Christianity without a cost is Christianity without a cross. And Christianity without a cross isn't Christianity at all. In this pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is addressing doubt. And the question is, how do you overcome doubt in a world that surrounds you with doubt? And we know it is because in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says that the majority are not going to believe. In every generation, it may be better some generations than others, but the majority since Noah's day to now is the people who don't believe God at His Word. How do you overcome doubt? I do believe that this is the key. What Jesus says in Mark 8. 
understand who Jesus truly is. To consider the fact that he created you, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He became one of you, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. He suffered everything that you do, yet without sin, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that he died, he was buried, that he rose again, Romans 6, 1 through 4. He ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. And right now he is at the right hand of God on your behalf, if you're a child of God, Hebrews 4, 16, so that you can come boldly into his presence. He is rooting for you, he is for you all the way. He'll give you every resource that you need. If you understand who He truly is in the worst of your doubts, He'll see you through. If you will be mindful of the things of God rather than the things of men. How do you know if you're doing that? Are you denying yourself? Are you properly investing? And what's your moral and spiritual courage like? These are areas where we can all grow. But it may be that we find ourselves at a very critical, crucial point. That we have allowed this world to eclipse our view of the sun. I can't remember when it was, but it was not all that long ago that it was on a Sunday. It was right around sunrise. There was a blood moon eclipse. Did any of you see that? Have you, have you seen one before? It's, it's a very rare occurrence. It's a lunar eclipse. But that lunar eclipse allows the sunlight to be filtered out through that moon. And we can't see the sun because of that object that's in the way. That's what happens in my life. When I allow the things of this earth to keep me from seeing the sun. Jesus says, you don't have to be a doubter. You can have faith that grows and that allows you to overcome. This morning I may be talking to somebody who's not acted on that faith, that conviction. Maybe it's been growing in your heart and mind that Jesus is the Son of God, but you've not yet done what from Acts chapter 2 forward, when the church was established, people were told to do in response to the message of Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, are you ready to change your mind that leads to a change of action, repent, and to be baptized to have your sins washed away? More likely it could be that there's a child of God here who's been struggling. Maybe you feel like you're drowning in doubt. It's not the road that you want to continue on. You know better. You need the strength and the resolve to do better. How better to handle that than to have your brothers and sisters in Christ to rally around you, to put our arms around you, to have one of our dear shepherds to pray for you. If you need to respond to this invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?